I'm Pat Hyben, and over the past 25 years, I've sold over 7,000 homes, selling over a billion dollars in volume. In 2010, I sold my team business to my top agent and went on book tour promoting my book, Six Steps to Seven Figures, a real estate professional's guide to building wealth and creating your destiny. That book went on to become a New York Times bestseller. Now I live off the passive income streams from the real estate I bought with commissions I earned as a full-time agent. And I am committed to giving back to the real estate industry as so many mentors of mine have given back to me. On this show, we'll interview the world's best agents, brokers, coaches, and investors to help you make more commissions and create the life you deserve. Okay, Rockstar Nation. Boy, I have, I actually have a sort of kind of a returning guest, but not really. David Osborne interviewed me on the second podcast ever back in 2014, podcast number zero two. It's like a 10 minute podcast and it was just real short. It was like, hey, Pat, why are you doing this podcast? He was kind of the host and I was the guest. And uh, so it really didn't count. Ever since then, for the last three years, I've been trying to get him back and to no avail, even though we talk weekly, uh, but uh, he's finally here and uh, basically David is launching a book and uh, we're excited to uh, be part of that launch and, and talk to him all about uh, what's going on with this book launch and all things real estate. Uh, so without further ado, David, welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Thanks, Pat. It's great to be with you. It's an honor to be with you. You know I love you like a brother, so being back on your podcast is, is just fun. I'm really proud of what you built here. It's a, it's a vibrant community of rock star agents. So, hey, why don't you give everybody a little rundown on you so they can get to know you better? Sure. I'm a son of a real estate agent. I've been in the business since before the earth cooled. Uh, my mom uh, started in real estate after my dad retired from the Army in 1980. I became her I never thought I'd get into real estate, Pat. I was like, no way. Are you kidding me? I mean, my mom would leave the house at five in the morning and come back at 10 p.m. at night. I thought, that's not a real job. That's just where, you know, retired people go to kind of kill time at the end of their careers. And then one day my uh, mom's assistant quit and I'd just been, I was kind of in debt. I was coming off of a around the world trip and uh, she said, come work for me. I said, no, no, I don't want to. She said, I'll come on just temporarily. And I'm like, okay, I'll come work for you temporarily. And here I am, 20 plus years later, still temporarily working in real estate. I was lucky enough to be at the fastest growing real estate company in the world, which was called Keller Williams. And as Keller Williams was growing, leadership was in short supply because we were a tiny company. I think there was probably a few hundred people in the company when I joined. Today, there's 160,000. And uh, I was you know, given opportunity. There were doors opened up that probably wouldn't be today. And those doors were to open franchises, to buy regional master territories. So I sold real estate for three years. Then I started opening franchises in Dallas and uh, used my folks' money. I had none myself at the time, very little anyway. Uh, they didn't have that much either. And then we just were able to go from success to success along with the company and eventually became the largest broker owner in the Keller Williams Network. Uh, when I completed my merger with uh, Smokey Garrett last year from Erlington, 
We now do a close to $9 billion in sales and have just over 4,000 real estate agents. I think we'd be a top 10 company in the U.S. out of 80,000. It's been a great journey. But along that way, Pat, as you know, you've been a, a longtime peer partner for me, kind of like part of my board of directors. And when I met you in 1997, you and I began a process of growing together, getting stronger together, getting smarter together. And one of the things you and I held each other accountable to is investing in other assets. So in addition to my Keller Williams stuff, thanks to our relationship and many other mentors and teachers along the way, I've also built a pretty significant real estate portfolio, single family homes, close to 100, and then commercial, multifamily uh, and then a few years ago, Pat, at the bottom of the market, I started a distressed debt fund where we started buying, it's still really basically real estate, but we started buying uh, real estate debt on commercial real estate around the country. And we've got about, oh, probably 60 million in loans currently that we carry on our books that were that are part of my private equity fund. Uh, and a couple years ago, I merged, or maybe just less than one. Uh, with a brilliant lady from Austin, Texas named Lisa Harris. And now we have a full-blown private equity fund called Align Capital. And we do, she does the technology piece. I still do the distressed debt. We're rolling out an oil fund, I think, tomorrow. And then a special opportunities fund. So we've got, I think, in that fund total, uh, probably $70 million under management, but access to close to a couple hundred million more if we need it. So yeah, things have been really good and it's been a great journey. I'm also the father of three wonderful children, two beautiful daughters, and a beautiful son who's only five months old, and I'm married to my lovely, lovely wife, Tracy. Wow, that was quite a journey. I hope you guys caught all of that. That was amazing. I just want to recap a little bit of it, if that's okay. Basically, you started out, right? Now, your mom was like Gary Keller's like number six agent or something like Correct. that, right? Yeah, like fifth. I always say fifth, but I'm actually not sure if it's exactly fifth. Okay, fifth so let's good, say so she was the fifth agent. All the other four probably died or got out of the business, right? <laughs> well, so well she was one the Gary one Gentry that, is still there, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so how many agents are at Keller Williams today? I just didn't want Gary Gentry to hear this and hear we'd said he was dead, Pat. I thought that'd be bad for <laughs> no, him. I didn't. Is he? <laughs> so Gary, Gary Gentry's the he number one agent. He can't hear it if he's dead. Okay. He's <laughs> no, four. He's, here. he's alive. He's okay. still selling. He's four. He your mom's one. five. Who cares, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Who cares? So okay, he's four. Your mom's five. Uh, how many today? Uh, today, there's 160,000 agents in the Holy country. Holy massive. dirt. Okay, Ooh, so I am kinetically feeling questions coming in from our audience here, right? And uh, they're like, David, hey, when you joined up with this gig, right? And you started yeah. opening offices, right, with yep. your parents' money. Did you have any idea that it would be 160 agents, 160,000 agents and uh, however many offices? How many offices? 1,000 offices or so? Uh, there's like 700 offices, 700 offices. Did you ever, did you ever, at what point did you know this thing's going big? You know, at first you're just trying to survive, Pat. You're just doing what needs to be done every day. You have no idea. You get mocked, you get ridiculed. People would laugh at us. They would call us the paint company because of a similarity to Sherwin Williams versus Keller Williams. And, uh, people would say we we're an illegal pyramid scheme. We're about to go out mm. of business. So early on, you're just taking the shots, man. You're getting punched left and right. And you just don't worry about it. You keep your head down, you keep building. And, uh, so, so you start getting a little momentum and you're like, Hey, this is going to work pretty good. But it wasn't until probably the nineties, the late nineties, no, 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 not even the late. I'm sorry. That's way too, more like the late two thousands, like 2006, seven, eight, when I began to feel like we were an unstoppable force. So I guess for 10 years, it was just head down, grinding away getting wins, having losses, kind of climbing your way up 
into significance, like fighting your way to be recognized in the industry. And then in the late 2000s, I think it became obvious to me that at some point we were going to be the number one real estate company in the world. And then after the last downturn, uh, it was very clear uh, in the late, you know, in the where we are now that we're just going to rocket. We're steamrolling the competition. We're growing really fast, which is also a whole nother terrifying place to be, right? Because when you're climbing the ladder, all you can do is improve next to your competitors. But when you're at the top of the ladder, all you can do, you know, like everybody's gunning for you. Back in the day, we were the rebels. We were gunning against the empire, but now we are the empire. We're the biggest guys out there. So everyone's gunning for us. So it's interesting. I think I like the climb a lot more than being the, the established target. Uh, but, but both are fun. Hmm. That's, that's an interesting thought process there. You like the climb more than the established target. Well, just be careful what you wish for. I mean, I think it's. Yeah. I think you still probably got to work just as hard. You still got to be paranoid. I don't think you, you, you know what I mean. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, that, that yeah, someone's yeah. gunning for you. Now, the cool part is you and I have done a lot of traveling together. We've been to probably twenty countries together, and and I know over the years I've watched you have a lot of conversations with people on planes sitting next to us and. And, uh, you know, walking or meeting people at bars and restaurants and in different countries. And, you know, I can remember you saying, you know, we're the sixth largest real estate company in the world. I work for Keller Williams, the sixth largest. And then it became we're the fifth largest, then became we're the fourth largest. And it's funny now looking back on it. Uh, now we're the largest real estate company here, how you've changed your script over time. And, and it, you know, this is decades of time, but uh, it's fascinating for me to have watched that ascension there. So that was really yeah, it's cool. Been, and it's so, been a journey, Pat. And when, you know, you've been able to see it. When did you think it was inevitable for us? You know, I mean, you probably saw me through all the struggles, you know, you saw me through yeah, all the pain. What was, you, you know, I mean, I, I would probably say the same time, you know, uh, because, you know, I think when, when you said this early on, you said, you know, when things are bad, people think things are going to get worse. And when things are good, people think things are going to get better. And so, uh, somebody saw it, Gary and, and you and, you know, uh, after the downturn of 2008, 2009, where I think Remax had, you know, whatever you want to call number one, right? Who, who Remax yeah, or whoever, Remax, Remax, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Everybody calls it, you know, agent count, units, transactions, volume, whatever, commissions. But it just became clear that they were kind of huddling up more and you guys were charging forward more and well you know they we've got we're targeting the trifecta now so we're number one by miles on agent count but they're targeting production we're targeting production and units and i don't think we're very far away i think this year keller williams will pass remax in production and volume and in units so then we'll have agent count units and production you know they hired john davis which was a great move for them in 2006 and he rolled out the growth initiative and I think, uh, or I'm sorry, 2009, maybe eight or nine, right in the bottom. It was when we just started getting aggressive. Gary's always said that you add market share at the bottom of the market and you never lose it. And that's what he did. He just got very aggressive on expansion. Okay, wait a minute. Let me, let me, let's slow this, this conversation down. Some. So first of all, John Davis used to work for you, right? For 10 years, John and I were, he started off as my employee and became my partner. Okay. And and that's a good call for you as far as picking uh, solid people, obviously, right? Because then he eventually was tapped to run the company along with Chris Heller, who's been on the show, episode 479. And so yeah, what is so the gross initiative? And say what you just said about, you know, when things get tough. Yeah. Yeah. So Gary always says, you know, when the market is down is the time to take market share, like get aggressive, grow, and you never give up 
market share that you gain in a downturn and you never get back the market share you lose in a downturn. So instead of just kind of consolidating and, and pulling in our tendrils and kind of, you know, nursing ourselves in the downturn, Keller Williams got ex aggressive on expansion, aggressive on growth. Let's hire more people. Let's get after it harder than we ever have. Let's work an extra hour a day. Let's add one more person a month. And that was the growth initiative. It's basically a set of tools and value propositions that they've rolled out, you know, corporate has rolled out to us in the last five years that have just built a huge wall of value and increased the recruiting of the team leaders. And that's what's caused the company to, you know, double in size in the last six years. So at the from the bottom of the downturn to today, we've doubled in size. And it's basically a massive accountability system. Is what accountability to your appointments. Look, if you're an agent, it all ties into the same thing. If you're a real estate agent, you know, the number one thing you got to do, Pat, early on is prospect, 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 prospect. You will never fail if you're willing to put in the hours prospecting. And I don't care whether you have tons of charisma or no charisma, because I've seen both sides succeed. I've seen people you thought that were like rock stars you know, the Michael Jackson of real estate fail because they didn't prospect. And I've seen people who could barely speak English make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year because they're willing to prospect and prospect is making your calls. And uh, that's what Keller Williams has rolled out through the growth initiative is our team leaders are basically like mega agents building a mega team, which is the real estate office. Make your calls 40 appointments a week. And uh, holding that standard, and if you get that in, 40 appointments a week, it's really hard to fail, man. And if you had 40 face-to-faces as a real estate agent, it's really hard to fail. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's more like a permanent boot camp or a permanent accountability where you're just, you know, you know, I, I, I liken it to a boot camp or like a boot camp at a gym where you show up every morning at 6 and someone yells at you and makes you do things, you're in great shape for six weeks, but after that, you know, you get fat again. And so the growth initiative and what John's rolled out and, and it has permeated through the company is, you know, hey, the boot camp doesn't end. You know, this is something we got to do every day, every week. And it's what agents have to do every day, every week. They need to prospect. They need to, to get business. They need to make money. It's a never-ending boot camp, Pat. Couldn't be said better. And it's what you and I have done for each other over the years, holding each other accountable. You and I would get a little fat, whether it's in business terminology or in real life. And then we get back together for our quarterly updates or our adventure mastermind trips. And we'd be we'd be we'd we'd know we were gonna see one another. So we'd go to the gym and work out so we could be lean and mean when we went and climbed Mount Whitney together or climbed Kilimanjaro together. It's the same thing. Life is a recurring series of you know, boot camps, if you want to win, if you, if you want to be complacent and just let life take you wherever it goes, you don't have to do that. But for us, and that's really to me where the joy is too, is rediscovering something new to get really good at, whether you decide you want to get really good at, you know, horizontal income, which is one of the reasons we wrote the book is I see so many realtors out there and maybe they've mastered the art of prospecting. So they're generating so much business, they can barely keep up with it and they're making a ton of money. They get, the guys can come into real estate and, you know, they might've been a postal worker, maybe they were making 50 grand and suddenly they literally making $700,000 a year. And that's because they mastered the art of prospecting and handling the customer and finding the business. But what's what broke my heart, Pat, in the real estate business for so long is seeing so many realtors like just crush it for five, six, seven years and then come out of it with nothing. Like I think mm. the average top producer lasts about 6.2 years was a study I saw from Remax a few years ago. Now, maybe they some of them went to other companies and continued, but they, you know, how many of them end up broke? You get this really peak earning experience. And I had the you know pleasure of sitting beside you as like a co-pilot for your life, just like you're a co-pilot for my life. 
and watching you be one of the exceptions, being the exceptional one that makes a million dollars a year for four, five, six years, but didn't squander that opportunity because you didn't take that money and just redeploy it into the next marketing campaign or the next great computer or the next lead generation software, even though all of those are important. You <laughs> took that money and you invested it in real assets, real income producing assets. And that's made it where when you decided to retire, you know, you still have a practice and you're still in the business, but you really do what you want, when you want, with whom you want. And that's because you were able to take those assets and replace your income. And today you have, I can't remember, 40 different income producing assets and uh, you're living, you know, on passive income that exceeds most people's, you know, you make probably more in two months than most people make in a year. And you don't have to do anything but go to your mailbox to get that money. And that's what I want for realtors. I want realtors that succeed and get to that level of success to make sure they park money in income producing assets. So just like you or Tim Rode or other peer partner or many of the people we know in this space, they can be financially free. Okay, so define income producing assets. So no one is on the Forbes, you know, 400 list. I, I, I like, I don't like many of your listeners. I go look at it every year when it comes out and it's the billionaires list. And I always look at how many are in different industries and how they made their money. And what's funny is in all of time, more money has been made in real estate than any other space in the history of time. Now, not Steve Jobs money, not Bill Gates money, not the, the, the 80 billionaires. And if you, if you know how to design the next iPhone, you should get off this call right away and go design the dang thing. Cause I can't wait to use it, but that's not me. I'm not a guy that's going to design the next iPhone, but I'll tell you how you can get rich in life. You own real income producing assets and nobody on that Forbes 400 billionaire list makes it on the list unless they have a billion dollars of assets and assets are like literally things like houses, stocks, bonds, whatever. And because we're in real estate already, then my viewpoint is why don't we buy real estate income producing assets? So to me, a great income producing asset is something that cash flows around 12 to 14% cash on cash a year. So that means if you buy a house for 200,000, you put down 40, uh, 20%, which is 40,000. To get to 12%, you need to have about 12,000, uh, let's see, 40,000. You need to be at about uh, 5,000 a year net cash flow. And you're thinking, how can I possibly get rich on 5,000 a year net cash flow? That's after your principal, interest, vacancy, repairs, everything from rent. And the reality is you can't right away but if you just keep plugging away like you did, Pat, like Tim Rowe did, eventually you'll reach a point where those houses get paid for. You put them on 15-year notes. Maybe you make a few extra payments or you just expand the size of your portfolio. And suddenly when that house is paid for, that 5000 now jumps up and it jumps up to 2000 a month. So now you have one house generating 2000 a month for you. And if you bought 10 of those houses, now you're at 20000 a month, which is 240000 a year, which isn't a bad living. And that's what I mean by income producing assets. You're in the space, you're in the business. You must occasionally walk into a property and go, wow, this is a really good deal. And, and if you turn to your client at that time and say, do you want this house? And they say, no, why don't you buy it? That's my encouragement. And uh, I, I also know the McKissicks. They're good friends of mine. They have well over 100 rental properties. And they have many other assets. But the point is, like my portfolio of 97 or so single family homes generates 400000 a year in net income. So that's a pretty good living right there. If I did nothing else that would take care of my family and I. So that's why I think people should do it. They overestimate. Yeah, you need, you, what you they, need to buy three more to make it 100. I know, I know. We keep, <laughs> we keep calling the herd, Pat. So that's the problem. Like, so what we do with that many homes is if one of them keeps breaking and keeps giving us problems, we sell it. And so actually we were as high as like 99 and then we dropped to 93. <laughs> and now we're back up. And I, I agree with you. I where, need to be where are these houses? Where are these houses? 
Well, I don't necessarily encourage this for right away, but I own them everywhere. I'm in, I'm in about 10 different states right now. Uh, I have a bunch in Mississippi. I have a bunch in Florida. I have a bunch in Texas. Uh, but I encourage people to start off close to home. Ultimately, uh, it's easy for me to manage property because everyone I, I buy, I build in an 8% management fee into my cost. So I'm looking, I would only buy real estate that has a positive cash flow. I'm never betting on the come bet. I'm never betting on the future. It doesn't have to, the economy doesn't have to get better for me to make money. I'm already making money, usually one or $200 a month per property. And therefore, if things get bad, I've still got a cushion. And if things get better, I get to enjoy the rise. And I start off near me in Austin, Texas, which has been really good. And I, uh, I should have bought more. You should have been telling me to buy more back in the day, but now it's pretty unaffordable for rental properties. But I expanded out. Now I'm in uh, south of Memphis. I'm in uh, areas in Florida, like Fort Pierce, really anywhere. I've got a network of agents out there. They send me deals. And that's one of the things we try to teach people too. You got to look at deals constantly. To get good at finding real estate deals, you got to look at deals. And people say, well, I don't have any money to buy. I said, it doesn't matter. If you suddenly came into money and you'd never looked at a deal, you wouldn't be ready to buy anything anyway. So you should be looking at deals every month, maybe two a month, three or four a month. I probably look at hundred deals or more a year. So I'm probably up to 10 or 10 or so a month. Now, now, now you're looking more at company deals, right? Are you still looking at house deals and development I, I deals? Probably, and- I just, I just invested in bulletproof coffee. You know, anyone out there, I'm sure some of your listeners like the bulletproof coffee. So yeah, now I'm looking for companies. I'm looking for bigger hits and I still do my single family homes though. It's just that my team does 90%. In fact, my team now I think they bought four homes this year, and I haven't looked at any of the deals. But keep in mind, my single-family home deals. We but all, have- all the deals, to, to keep this realistic, all the deals, the four deals you bought this year were off-market deals? They were kind of in a very privileged market deals. Uh, the four market deals I bought this year were... I mean, were they in MLS and sitting there yeah. in 45 days and no one else bought them? And I mean, I you know what I mean? Or were yeah, they-, they, were, they, were, they were marketed through clearing houses, but they were on the MLS. But the thing is, these are bank-owned, so there's there's places where you can go to buy homes directly. And, uh, I, and so they so were on the a- MLS. They were on the MLS, but they were overpriced. And then you you bought the note essentially. Yeah, I either bought the note or I made a lowball offer to the bank and they accepted it. You know, I've got a I've got a team that manages this, so they you know back in the day in the crash we were buying from HUD, so they were selling. They had big lists. We'd buy 30, 40 homes at a time. Right. We probably did six or seven hundred homes in between. I mean, know, what, I'm, what I'm what I'm well, finding today is that yeah. you know if you really are giving advice to people to go out there and buy houses, they really ought to be doing it by driving around looking for vacant stuff or, or rundown stuff and trying to mail letters to tax records and trying to get these things off market. Because if you, know, if you just go into your neighborhood and buy some random house, chances are you're not going to make the 10, 12, 15% that David's talking about. Yeah. And what I'd encourage people to do, and Pat, most of them are probably doing nothing. So if we make it too complicated, I agree with you that all these new strategies open up when you start taking action. But if nothing else, if you're a realtor, go find the investment specialist in your office and say, send me deals. Because what I want them to do, Pat, is start waking up their reticular activator towards deals. Because you'll never identify a good deal from a bad deal if you never look at deals. So you've got to look at them. And whether it's doing what you said and marketing vacant property, which is a higher level, or simply going to the top investment realtor in your office and saying, hey, Joe, I'm interested in buying a real estate investment this year. Could you start sending me what you see? And you may say no to all of it, so much so that Joe gets bored and quits sending you stuff. 
But that's the beginning of awakening your awareness to this idea that I need passive income and the way I get to passive income is looking at deals. And just like you, Pat, when you started in real estate, you had no idea of all the strategies you would eventually use to build your real estate team up to where you're doing over 5.6 million in GCI in, in sales. But that's the same with deals. You'll, new strategies will open up as you start paying attention to this very important side of your life of building passive horizontal income. Yeah. So this is awesome, guys. And I think you get the point. I mean, basically, here's David. He basically started at the bottom. He was a buyer agent. Not only was he a buyer agent, but he was a buyer agent for his mother. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah. he started at the bottom. Much lower than that, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So he started. He went. You know, you did go to college. I think you said you graduated with a two three or something ridiculous. Yep. You got, um, that's right. I, that's I, right. I got barely, you beat. I was a two six. And 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 then he started buying Keller Williams franchises offices. Then he started buying the regions, which there's only at how many regions are there. 30 regions. And 30 regions. Successful. And you, you couldn't and, buy one today. They're all off the table. And you're in six of them. So five of them. Five of them. Okay. So you're in five of these regions and built these regions. Then he started buying uh, little greenhouses. And then he started uh, Monopoly analogy there. And then he started buying the big red hotels, which is apartment buildings with me and Tim Road and Andrew Cushman, and some other people. Then he started buying mortgages at around 40 cents, 45, 50 cents on the dollar of what the people owed. And then he created this large company that does that. And now he's created another company that invests in everything from oil to high tech. Uh, I know I've got money in the high tech fund. I've got money in, in several of your real estate funds where we buy mortgages at a very low cost and then uh, renegotiate yeah. the mortgage and then either put the house on the market and sell it or or whatever, or do a, a, yeah, a workout yeah. with the consumer. So, okay, we, so here you are today. You've built this massive conglomerate. You've got all these things going on, right? How do you keep it together? So you've got to just keep, you know, you've got to keep hustling, keep moving forward. And then you also got to be willing to live with a little amount of chaos and confusion. Remember that book called Thriving on Chaos, which I bought many years ago. I don't know that the book actually helped me that much, but the title was amazing. Uh, and it was like, yeah, that's what it is. It's you have to be willing to like live in a certain amount of confusion at all times. I never know what's going on. I have, you know, I heard a quote once that I love, Pat, and it said, "You're only rich when you don't know how much you have." I thought, oh wow, that what does that mean? Wait a minute, wait, wait, I, let's, oh, let's slow I, it down. Yeah, you're only rich. Yeah, when you don't when you don't know how much you have. Think about it. If you're a billionaire, you own all this stuff. You don't know the valuation of all that stuff. That's at funny because I've asked so I've asked some billionaires or who I thought were billionaires or might be billionaires what their net worth was, and they said I don't know. And at first, I thought they were just blowing me off, but I really think that they don't know. You wouldn't know because everything asset classes are changing all the time, right? And I've reached a point in my life where when I start with business A, by the time I get to my 10th business, I already forgot what I was thinking about on A. I can't, you know, it's just there's too much. And that's, you have to be willing to accept that. And so I've always thought of life as like we're a surfer riding a wave and the ocean is the assets or whatever that's around you, everything around you. And you're just like this little pinprick on top of a wave. And that's <laughs> what I try to do. So I have great people. You mentioned earlier that John Davis worked for me. Now he's the CEO of Keller Williams. He worked for me for 10 years became my partner, and then moved on to bigger and better things. But across the board, I've just made it a, a, a mission and Much a science bigger, to way. hire great people. Yeah, absolutely. And so <laughs> <I'm> it's just, <laughs> about... <laughs> all right. So, yeah. And I know what you're saying. Uh, I know what you're saying on chaos, because I'm trying to get you to come to my house on like April 7th. 
or, or something like that. And you can't even pin down that because you don't know where you're going to be. And my wife's like, is David and Tracy coming to visit? And I'm like, well, I don't know. He just is chaotic. He may be here. He may not be. We probably should block off the calendar in case they're here. And that's kind of how you live your life, right? A lot of times you, you might not know that you're going somewhere till the day before. And then you jump on your plane and go there. And then, you know, I mean, is that kind of how you yeah, got to learn to live? I look at my calendar, know where I'm going. And, and this kind of was beginning to form eight years ago, but now it's in its highlight. I'm literally like a, when they, when they take off from New York to fly to LA in a plane, they got a, a navigator who's charted the course and the pilot just follows that course. And I'm the same way. Like I wake up every day, look at my schedule, usually the night before. And that's when I know what I've got the more. Am I playing golf or am I working a 12 hour day? Now, when I have those 12 hour days ahead of me, I usually know because I'm like building reserves. Like last week I worked two 12 hour days, but then I played golf two of the other days, you know? So it's like I wake up, look at my schedule. It tells me what I'm doing. And that's really how my life goes. And there's, I've got a team that sets that schedule and they're on top of it. They know what and when and where I'm doing and they just schedule it. And I gave them full permission to schedule my life and own it. And so literally, I don't know what I've got until I, you know, night, the night before when I'm going to bed. That's awesome. So, so let's jump into the book. Okay. So why did you write this book? So my dad died, Pat, as you know, of cancer three, uh, seven years ago now. But when he got cancer, I remember sitting next to him. I took a really slow year that year, and I just tried to be a good son and spend a lot of time with my dad, a lot of time with my mom as he went through that, especially towards the end. And I realized how I was sad. And one of the sadnesses, there's a lot of sadnesses when you lose a parent, but one of them was all the stories my dad had. My dad was a storyteller. He'd always tell these stories. Sometimes, by the way, it'd be like the same story, but it had a different ending. So, you know, I don't know where all the stories came from, but... Uh, he was a great storyteller, and I was sad that he was taking all those stories with him to the grave. And then I thought to myself, obviously, what if I died tomorrow? Like, what would my kids know about me? I'm I'm a fairly older father, and so it kind of inspired me. Like, okay, I'm going to start writing down my wisdom. And I'm not like my dad. I don't have a fun a bunch of funny stories about the army, or you know, he's a Green Beret colonel about war and all the different stuff. He would have funny stories about. But I got a compendium of wealth in my head. I've been learning base for a lifetime. I've been committed. Funnily enough, as bad as a college student as I am, I think I'm a straight A student in learning about life and success. And, and I wish I'd been like this in college. I'm not, but I think you are as well. We're both dedicated to learning about great nutrition, great health, how to be a great husband, how to be a great father, all these things. And I thought, I've got a lot of wisdom in me. If I got hit by a bus tomorrow, my kids would get none of that. So I really started from, I want to write all this stuff down to serve my children in case anything ever happens to me. That's where it mm, began. Okay. And that was seven years ago. And it's really? been just- Interesting. Yeah. And it's been a grind. You know you wrote your book. It's not an easy process. So you started writing down wisdom yes. seven years ago in what, like journals, like hardback journals yeah. and stuff? Okay. Yep. And then yep. so yep. now I visualize this big stack of journals. Now, how, how do you go into that and make espresso? How do you, you know what I mean? How do you take all yeah. that massive coffee beans and make espresso and put it in a little tiny book? Well, it's like everything, you know, so I start off actually just kind of typing into the computer. I had journals for years like you do, but I was typing into the computer and I thought, oh, that's a good piece. That's a good piece. And then suddenly I'm left with chaos. And then I met my, so I've got like 300 to 150 pages, but they're not in any order. And like everything in my life, you know, then you assemble a great team. I've already said about the importance of hiring talent and the importance of leverage. And, uh, Funny enough, I hired a ghostwriter. They started writing for me, and I hated it. I was like, that is not my words. I can't work with you. So I ended that relationship. Then I hired somebody else, and they didn't work for me. But eventually, Pat, I came full circle to the team you hired, which is the guys at Greenleaf. 
But what happens is you hire these killer editors. And what the editors would do, and by then I probably had 300 pages of words. I mean, at first I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to write enough. And then, I, then they're like, you've written way too much. This is like five books. And so they edit it. And what they'll do is they'll find that chapter three and chapter 17 have similarities and they merge the similarities into one. They take half of 17 and they put it in three and then they take the other half of 17 and make it an independent chapter or they just eliminate <laughs> it. And, and this is a process we do with them, right? So the hardest part about writing the book wasn't actually the writing. It's editing the dang thing like 10 plus times. And I wrote, I edited it 10 times. I've read my own book 10 times. And what's funny is I read the final product the other day and I already found a mistake. I'm like, you know, I'm like you. I'm a little OCD, a little perfectionistic. I'm like, dang, how did I miss that? But then I know how I missed it because we read it so many times. And uh, that's the beauty of the process. But that editing team was great. They did an amazing job of taking your ideas and putting them together. And I'm really, really proud of that editing team. And I'm proud of the book. I mean, again, it's mission accomplished. If okay, you read so, this book, so you will be more successful after. The book's called Wealth Can't Wait. And uh, it's written with my co-author, Paul Morris. Yeah, of course, Paul's been on the show twice. He, he Originally, he was in, in the way beginning, like number 62, he came on. And then uh, you can find a, a really good one that we did with him that actually touches on uh, a lot of the stuff you touched in on today in the book, or, or will touch on, is uh, 283. Paul was in, he talked about the what he called at that time the five ultimate steps to being rich. So 283 and, and back in the old school, 62. So, yeah. It's solid, you, man. There's, you, there's you a lot of good stuff. You and Paul are together because you run the California, one of the California regions for Keller Williams, right? Yeah, and Paul's a really bright guy. He was a summa cum laude and a lawyer and worked for you know the Attorney General of the United States for a while. And two <laughs> years into my process, I told him at dinner, he said, actually said to me, I want to write a book on wealth. I'm like, no kidding. I've been trying to write one for two years. And what I found is having someone to bounce stuff off of was much easier for me. So mm. our dialogue started the genesis of creating the book. And then, as you know, writing a book's a very expensive process. So I also had someone to split the cost with me. It's not like this is a moneymaker. And then, um, you know, what's funny, Pat, is I saw Sam Zell speak the other day. Sam Zell is a real estate guy. I love him. He's worth $5 billion. He just wrote a book, and he said on stage in front of like 400 people, writing this book's been the hardest thing I ever did. And I'm thinking, gosh, I feel the same way. It makes me really good to hear that a guy worth $5 billion that's been scrappy his entire life and fought his way up from – C-class properties to A-class properties. He said writing that book's the hardest thing he's ever done. Yeah, so if somebody like, tells I, you that it's easy to write a book or they write a book in, in 30 days, uh, it's a piece of crap. You know what I mean? Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> they say you it, never write a book, you just rewrite a book. Yeah, that is so true. And so, it starts okay. off all romantic and you're excited about it. Then it becomes like a slave master at the end. You're like, oh my gosh, you mean I got to read this thing again? Yeah. Oh, God. My book was grueling. I mean, it was it was hard work, and you have to have time. Yet, you know, or else the book is just going to be terrible. And you don't want to put yeah. out there a terrible book. I mean, and people will let you no. know right away. You know, the one Dude, star reviews reading, will start popping up like crazy. I remember reading your first review, your first book, and I was like, "This is terrible." And then I read your final product. And I'm like, "This is amazing!" Like the the turnaround you've been through, and you're you've been a model for me for many different ways. But I, I remember the first review of your book. I thought it was terrible. I mean, I really yeah. did. I, you remember? Yeah, me? I yeah. Told you, you said like, this I'm is your, totally ADD. You said you this is totally ADD, and you sent it back to me. <laughs> and then I read the final one, and I went and spoke with you, and I was like, "This is great." I mean, anyone could pick up six steps to seven figures and it'll improve their life. Like that's, that's the bottom line. And that's, you can't ask for much more than that. 
Right, right. Yeah, and it's all about getting professionals involved and and, and, because we're not creative writers. I mean, we didn't get degrees in creative writing. We didn't get degrees in storytelling. We didn't get degrees in editing, you know what I mean? Or we we don't know. We have no experience in that. So, So anyways, okay, so let's talk about the book. You know, can you give us like some free tips from the book? Like, yeah. um, like, like, how do you have this thing broken down? You have the, the seven do's and the seven don'ts, right? Yeah, we've got, we, so we start with, you know, we start with the mindset and everyone's always like, oh, mindset, sh- mindset, here we go again. But really, if you don't have the mindset, right, you'll never be wealthy. And, uh, now so do you think that, that some that- people, some people say, Hey, mindset is, is genetic, <laughs> you know, you're either a, an optimist or a pessimist. What do you have to say yeah. about that? I think there is a certain amount of of that, but you know, through GoBundance, Pat, you and I have changed lives. We've seen people get smarter. So you you got to have the willingness and the desire to get better. I think that's the piece that maybe you're born with. And if you have that willingness to get better, you will find the path to get. If better. If you're hungry, yeah. Some people if just aren't hungry. hungry. And and the, the, look, here's the bottom line: the book is about wealth, right? So it's about money, right? So you're either hungry for money or you're not. I see some people and I'm like, you know, they've got good ideas or whatever, but they don't have, they, like if, if there was a hundred bucks on the table and there was five people standing around and whoever grabbed it first gets it, they wouldn't just jump towards the table and grab it and just run bloody murder or, or fight everybody off like a rugby scrum, you know, to keep that money. They, they would yeah. wait and step back. They just don't have that hunger. They just don't have the desire, that angst to, to have money. Well, Does, am I making any and sense? And I think you've got to – some people need to draw an, a, what money means to them. Like I, with money, I give away hundreds of thousands of dollars, right, every year. So you give away a ton of money. You give away – like money isn't in and of itself – a useful asset, but what you can do with money is amazing. You know, I'm educating a kid in Mexico right now who couldn't afford to go and her parents would have had to sell her car to go to college. Uh, I get to fly around, as you mentioned earlier, in my own plane, right? That there's, there's experiences I can have. When I go to, when I went to South Africa, we were able to see more of the country because we, with the two families where we split a, a King Air so we could fly up to this safari and, you know, I got to pet a cheetah with my whole family. Like, that's what money does for you. It just expands your possibilities. If you equate it simply to money, then you're, that's, in my opinion, for many people, not motivational. You got to find the spirit behind it and then use that to drive you. And if you'll do that, you'll win. That's, you know, and I don't think it's innate. I think you can learn it. I definitely think you can learn it and you can choose it. I think I was a way more chill kid than I am now today. I'm much more OCD. I'm much more driven today than I probably was at 15. At 15, I was pretty happy, go lucky and a pretty loving kid. Now I did like working. So maybe that there was something there, but yeah, I think you, you can foster and develop it. So you just got to choose to live bigger. That's all money does is it enables you to live bigger. So the choice of living bigger will lead to bigger and bigger outcomes. And that's, I think, the mindset piece. You can't get complacent. You can't be okay watching your favorite TV show or playing video games all the time. It's okay to play video games and watch your favorite TV show, but that can't be your number one reason for living. And that's what we want people to do is yeah. embrace Okay, so, so why don't you run down the seven and the seven real just 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 the yeah, titles yeah, sure. yeah so the seven wealth traps we put in here like what stops people from making money or what stops people from breaking free and one of the biggest ones is the stable or cushy job like how many people do you know that are constantly talking about oh one day i want to buy real estate or one day i met a friend of mine the other day he's like 10 years ago i read all these books on real estate and i never bought a house but he's making 100 grand a year he's pretty happy he's comfortable he's got a family that's wife, half the country kids. by the way 
Yeah, and, and, and that's fine <laughs> if that's what you want. But I'm, what I'm saying is just be aware that that is a trap. You know, like, because 100,000 seems like a lot when you're 20, Pat, as you know. But when you're 50, it ain't that much, right? Mm. So, you know, that's the, the, the number one. And so you talk about a ski instructor that skis. I got a great ski instructor. He helps me out all the time. And he's been one of the best in the country for years. And he same thing. He said, I said, Where, where's your net worth? You know, this is the kind of guy I am. So he says, it's all in my house. I own one house. It's paid for. I'm like, why don't you own two? Like, you could have bought two. Why don't you own two? And I hear this over and over again. People are like, all oh, my net worth's half my net worth's in my house. I'm like, why do you only own one? Why don't you own two? A doctor in LA told me the same thing. Half my net worth's in my house. I'm like, why don't you own two? And so that's really the cushy job and, and not having the awareness of stepping out of your cushy job. And you don't have to quit your job necessarily, but there are, and we talk about some different strategies you can use to keep your job and also expand your wealth. Number two, Pat, is risk avoidance. Like wealth trap number two, people are terrified of risk. You know what I'm terrified of? I'm terrified I'm not taking enough risk. And I used to be more terrified of risk. And I still write a check like I did to Bulletproof and I get a little nervous. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if I lose that money? But more, I'm more scared of missing out on the opportunities by not taking that risk. Because what you learn from risk when you take risks, and I've had businesses that have failed and businesses that succeed, when they succeed, you get money and life changes for the better. When they fail, you get knowledge and life changes for the better. You cannot lose by taking risk. So I think people avoid risk and you need to get over that. That friend of mine that never bought a house 10 years ago happens to live in Austin, Texas. You could have bought anything in Austin, Texas, and it would have doubled over the last 10 years. So mm. he read all those books, avoided risk, took no action, and we put in the book that we actually think the biggest risk in life is not taking one. Damn. Okay. All right. Uh, what's the third one? Wealth is negative. Like a lot of people are like, and, and maybe that's not as common as it used to be. I'm not really sure. But some people just think wealth is a dirty word, that rich people are jerks, that they're just not worth being with. All they care about is their money. Snobs. And that's a yeah, they're snobs. They don't care about people. You know, I, I talk to guys that are like, oh, rich people are all trying to screw everybody. And that's totally untrue. The rich guys <laughs> I know are right. giving more back than that person complaining about the rich people. Every rich people person I've met is got a cause of some sort, whether it's putting clean water in Ethiopia, taking the homeless people off the street. You know, I mean, like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars going to these different causes by every wealthy person I've met so far. In fact, I met the other a guy the other day for coffee and he immediately sent me this thing, the refuge, which is with Navy SEALs. They're trying to find sexually exploited teenagers and get them off the streets and give them training and consulting and put the perpetrators in jail. And this is a guy who's worth like, I don't know, I think it's over a hundred million bucks. And you'd think, oh, he's just in it for himself. He's just greedy. But no, every one of them picks up a cause and does much more for society than that person complaining about how rich people are just greedy. Yeah. So I think you got to drop that negativity. Uh, the other one is quitting too early. A lot of people quit too early. So you hear this all the time. Like realtors will say, oh, I owned a rental property. It was a disaster. I'm never going to do that again. You know what I mean? So they took all the lessons of how to run a property differently, which might be to have a manager so they don't get those calls at midnight about the leaky faucet that probably drove them crazy. And they just decide because they had a bad experience, they never went in again. I talked to a guy the other day. He goes, I had 60 homes right at the top of the crash. It went bad. I barely got out. And I and then I, I haven't done anything since. And I'm like, well, you're crazy. If you'd done, and he got some money out when he sold his 60 homes, barely, he got like a few million bucks. And then he put it in annuities. And I'm like, if you had put that money into real estate in mm. 2010, it would have doubled by now. Okay, right? so what so did he say? Too early. What did he say? Uh, he said I should have done that. Okay, so he, he was like, it, yeah. he said that he he said he said he was a smart guy, and he's getting into it again now. But he said, 
the mistake I made is I didn't do what you did because I told my story and we took a lot of hits. I was terrified in 0708 like everybody else. My assets were falling by 50%. But I took a year off and then you remember, you, me, and Tim drove around the country looking for buying opportunities, I think, in late 2009. So we didn't quit playing the game and we bought some assets that we won and we bought some that we lost with, but we added more assets and we won more than we lost. So not staying the course. It's kind of like dollar cost averaging. You know what I mean? It, you just it is exactly keep, yeah. like that. Yeah. Yep. But you're just doing it with real estate. Yep. At Rebus University, we take the pain points out of selling real estate. Have you ever said out loud or in your mind, there are just no good leads or there's just no leads? Never again. That is exactly why we created 101 free ways to create real estate leads with real estate industry icon, Chad Goldwasser. Lost a listing to another agent? Never again. The Certified Listing Agent course goes through step-by-step step how eight of the world's top agents close 90-some percent of every listing appointment they go on. Industry icons like Buddy Blake and Marty Hampton have encouraged their entire team to take this course. And after they took it themselves, we gave them discounts for all their team members, and we'll give you that same exact discount if you go to rebusuniversity.com. Had a listing expire and another agent take it over and then drop the price drastically and it sold right away? Yeah, me too. That's why I created the Certified Price Reduction course. We've had several agents take that and get immediate price reductions. All of the reviews that we've gotten on rebusuniversity.com, by the way, have all been five stars. Our other flagship product, the Certified Team Agent with Jeff Cohn out of Omaha, Nebraska, has been selling off the shelves. Everybody wants to know what happens when you peel back the curtain of the Omaha's elite real estate team's inside business. Jeff and I sit down and talk about the nitty-gritty of where every dollar that he makes comes from and where every dollar that he spends goes out. It's an incredible, candid 10-hour course on how to build the mega team of the future. Use coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first course now. RebusUniversity.com Okay, what else you got? The victim and negativity trap. So hanging around with negative people, hanging around with victim people. You know, if you if you lead to people that are negative all the time and complaining all the time, it creates apathy and you don't move forward. So mm, yeah. Hmm. Deep, and then okay. the last one we and the last one we've got here is the know it all trap. You know, and this is where you think you know it all. This is terrible. Like I don't even know how to cure this. But you meet a guy, he doesn't know any rental properties. Like. Yeah, so I he goes, what do you do? I invest in rental property. He goes, oh, in rental property is a terrible investment. Let me tell you why. People call you until then. I'm like, well, how many do you own? No, I don't own any. But you apparently know everything there is to know about rental property. Yeah, I, I know it all. Like that's it's funny. Because people like that are almost unsavable. Here's the here's the stupid thing about that is is I've owned rental properties my entire adult life. Right? I think I bought the first one when I was like 23. I have never been called at midnight for a leaky toilet. 
I mean, that is the biggest fallacy, and people say that all the time. It's so asinine. It just doesn't make any sense, you know? I mean— It's a a strange thing, (laughs) but the the know-it-alls, Pat, are very hard to coach. Like, I got a guy the other day. I'm just trying to coach him, and he said, you're overstepping your bounds. I'm like, how can I be overstepping your bounds? I'm just trying to help you build your business. There is no boundary in business. Were you, like, all in his face at the gym or something like that? What's that? What were you doing? Were you talking about real estate at the gym when he was trying no, to work out and you're like two inches started, from his face? He started a new business. He's he's a friend of mine and he's, you know, like, I'm like, well, have you got the numbers? Have you studied the numbers? Like, have you got, you know, financials? He's like, I think you're asking too much money. Interesting about my business. <laughs> like, I run 40 businesses. This is all I do. If you could ever be helped by anyone and I'm offering you my help for free. He didn't see it And I'm not being like arrogant. It. I live and breathe this stuff. I've been punched in the face so many times in my life you wouldn't even believe it and I'm still standing, right? Or I got up off the floor all the times I got knocked down and he's like, you overstepped your bounds, best. And I'm like, That's awesome. It's just sad. That's man. hilarious. All right, and then you got, and then you guess so. You got the seven wealth traps, and and definitely they're wealth traps, and I love them. And I think that people are listening. There's not, I, I'm not, I'm going to go out on a limb, but there's there's probably not one person listening to this that hasn't been caught in the vortex of one of these wealth traps at some point in their lives, and hopefully they've they've made it out of that. But if not, and you're listening and you're in one, get out of it now. And then you have the seven business pillars. Right. So what are those? Yeah. So the seven business pillars um, are what it takes to build a successful business. So now we've avoided the traps. Uh, We've got the seven pillars. And the first one we've already talked about, client acquisition is king, right? Mm. The best surgeon isn't doing all the surgeries. It's the surgeon that can get the most clients. The best lawyer is not doing all the law practice. You might have this guy that would be the best lawyer in the world sitting in his office, twiddling his fingers because he doesn't know how to acquire uh, clients. It's quite, client acquisition is king. That's prospecting if you're a real estate agent. That's finding deals if you're an investor. That's getting cl- cases if you're a lawyer. So understand that. We talk about that. Uh, secondly, you're going to make the most money through barriers of entry. Like if you want to get into, there's a reason Austin is doubled in the downtown area, but only gone up by 50% in the surrounding suburbs. Because in the downtown area, there's limited resources. If you want to live in Austin and enjoy everything that Austin has to have, you've got to be inside the loop. You've got to be inside the river. Otherwise, you're driving an hour to go to a concert. Like if you live, live inside the loop. Because of traffic? Because of traffic. Yeah, and then, would a, this be true of every major downtown city though? Not everyone. No, Dallas is more dispersed, so Dallas has different areas. But even so would you then, say each, Austin has poor road systems to get in and out? Well, we have a, a river. So whenever you have a river, you've got three ways across that river. So you can imagine at 5 o'clock at night or 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning what those bridges look like. There's just no way around it. Manhattan would be a better example. San Francisco is another mm, example, yeah, right? right? You can't just buy. There's a certain amount of size that's considered San Francisco, and that Property, by the way, has gone up there like 7% for 40 or plus years, right? Mm-hmm. So if you buy, so you're looking for barriers of entry, you can find them anywhere. So that would be a barrier to entry is just the, yeah. you know, limited resource, limited amount of land, let's just say. Yeah, okay, keep absolutely. going. What's the third one? The third one is to learn to leverage. And there's three things you can leverage, systems, people, and capital, right? So when you buy a property, you get a loan from a bank, you're leveraging the bank's money. So if, if I make 5% gross on a property, but I have a, a 50% or a, a 80% loan on it, then that 5% is magnified by four times. So it's like a, a 20% return on my capital because I only put in 20%. So that's financial leverage. 
Systems leverage are finding stuff that works. And like, for instance, you and I talked about my schedule. I have fully leveraged out my schedule. If you email me and want an appointment with me, there are two people that look through that and determine whether that's an appointment I should have. They might even email back as if they're me, find out all about it, and then set up that appointment. And and then I, if it's on my schedule, that's fully leveraged out. That's a system leverage. And then the last one is people leverage, which is hiring great people. And you okay, need to so, become a master. So in reality, and I, I think people understand this, need to understand this, because as agents listening to this, and most agents are control freaks, right? They think they have to be themselves. But in reality, That's Donald Trump is never Donald Trump on any of his businesses, m massive amounts of businesses, billions of dollars worth of stuff, right? Yeah, look at, look at Warren Buffett. He doesn't run any of the businesses he owns, none of them, except so, for Berkshire Hathaway. Probably so you not don't, even that. So actually. you don't answer your emails, right? Someone else answers right. your emails. You, someone else does your Facebook. Someone, But it all appears that it's you, and you might tap into it a little bit here and there. But 90% yeah. of it is not David, but it's somebody who is responsible, conscientious, and alert and not yeah. going to miss anything. I see it all, so I'm, I might be seeing it because it comes up on my phone, but I don't answer it. And then if there's a VIP one, they'll say, David, we need you to look at this. But I've got a person that's with me all the time, knows how I think, what I'm trying to do, what my objectives are. My goals are posted. My vision is posted. So they know, understand what I'm trying to do. And they just filter through those opportunities. And I also look at my Facebook on a regular basis. But there's, if you send me a message on my Facebook, there's somebody looking at that, trying to determine if they can answer it before me. So yeah, I mean, I've got a high level of leverage across. Like Pat, here's another one. I have a trainer. I have the greatest trainer in the world. I love her to death. She's made me stronger in the in a correct way. She really pays attention to the order of the body stacks. She never lets me break my back or have bad form. And I'm stronger today than I've been in a long time because I've been working out with a trainer now, you know, three times a week whenever I'm in Austin, Texas. So that's another example of leverage. I'm much more willing to skip an appointment with myself at the gym than I am with my trainer because I've got that relationship. So that's another example of leverage. Having a great coach is an example of leverage. So all of these things, you, you can't build greatness without leverage. Okay. And then the second part of that is hiring and finding excellent people. Correct. That is exactly right. Okay. All right. What's the next one? So the next one's modeling. If you want to be a great realtor, go find a great realtor and model them. You know, people are very generous. Go ask if you can take them to coffee. I do this constantly to this day. I'm asking people now worth two, three, four hundred million dollars if I can have coffee with them. And I'm super respectful. I usually bring gift and I'm asking questions. I'm trying to model their lives. So identify a person or a company that is doing what you're doing at a much higher level and Until then you overstep their bounds. Yeah, which it does happen. Hey, man, I bought you this. I bought you this gift. <laughs> Least you could do is tell me what freaking net yeah. worth, please, sir. <laughs> yeah. Got, um, gotta stay humble, man. <laughs> All right, and you know I, this is great because I get multiple emails a week or Facebook. You know, people reaching out wherever they're reaching out on social media, what have you, from people that just got their license. It's amazing the education that people pull themselves through through podcasts and books and things uh, before they get their license, during the licensing process, or right after the licensing process. I wish more seasoned agents would do this, but. They're always asking, you know, who can I mentor with? And they always want to go to the, you know, the very top. They want like me to coach them or me to mentor them. And I don't do that unless it's, you know, through this type of forum, through a book or through the podcast. So, or through my classes at Rebus. But my answer to them is, 
you know, find the rookie of the year for last year, you know, and that rookie of the year in your office for last year will be happy to be your mentor and share with you exactly what they did to be the rookie of the year. And then you could be the rookie of the year this year. I love it. I mean, you're absolutely right. You don't need to reach up to a Pat Hyben if you're just fresh in real estate. If you reach up to a David Osborne, it's probably not that smart because there's guys closer to the action that know more than I do. Those yeah. are the ones you need to reach for. Right. And, and that's what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. What, what's next? So I think that's you know pretty good amount for them. There's, there's a lot more. Go buy the book at Amazon.com. They're running a special right now. Uh, I'll give you the last one, which is to invest in coaches, mentors, and masterminds. So there's, there's modeling after peers. But you need to spend money, and I probably still to this day spend maybe fifty to a hundred thousand dollars a year on coaches, uh, mentors, masterminds. I spent fifty grand to go hang out with Richard Branson on his island for for five days. Um, I hired a coach earlier this year for two thousand a month, and I fired him already because it wasn't working for me. But the point <laughs> is, you've got to continually invest it. in. You were overstepping your bounds, probably. <laughs> well, <right>. yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if you're having a coach, if you're working with a coach and they're asking you more questions and you're helping them more than you're you're getting help, you're <laughs> he was overstepping a, like, his bounds, right? <laughs> it was like asking me about real estate and passive income more than I was getting any, you know, on mindset. But I'm still looking for a new one. I'd constantly look for coaches. Tony Robbins is a mentor of mine for years. He has a co coaching program that's a million bucks a year, and I haven't done it, but I've considered doing it. You know, wow. so you just constantly want to have that next level coaching at all all times. That's, mm. that's what it's about. There's people out there that are smarter than you. And the sooner you get their wisdom inside you, uh, the faster your life will begin to change. Wow. Well, this has been great, David. I really appreciate you uh, jumping on the show here. This is going to be phenomenal. I know your book is going to sell many, many copies, and I'm excited to watch that ascend as well. All right, guys. So if you want to get more information on David and bear in mind, I'll put all his social media links and ways to contact him, but you'll go through a double filter process, two different people checking that stuff before it gets to him. So, But I'm going to put it on uh, hybendigital.com backslash David Osborne and the number two. David Osborne and the number two, and it's O-S-B-O-R-N, O-S-B-O-R-N. I'll put a link to his book if you guys want to jump on it. Uh, help him make the New York Times bestseller list and uh, be part of this movement. So, David, thanks so much, buddy, and hope to see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Pat. I'm grateful to be with you. Thank you for listening to Real Estate Rockstars. Please be sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening. All five-star reviews help us get better and better guests for your listening pleasure. And if you have a great review, I'll read it on the show. We are so proud of this show now with over a million downloads in 79 countries around the world. Also, don't forget to buy my book if you haven't already. Six Steps to Seven Figures, a real estate agent's guide to building wealth and creating your destiny. With an intro by Gary Keller. Sold everywhere online books are sold. You can always go to pathyben.com and find out about all things Pat Hyben. And don't forget to follow me on social media. All you got to do is type in my name. I'm everywhere and easy to find. I hope to meet face to face someday. But in the meantime, let's meet on social media. Thanks again for listening and keep rocking.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.